We live in systems. Let's try this again. Somebody say systems. Amen. Colossians 1, 15 through 16. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The Greek word used to describe all things holding together is, I'm going to try my best here, synestikin. And it's where we get our English word system. What's implied in this verse is that everything exists in a connected system and that Christ is the center of that system holding it all together. Now, while our culture may seem mysterious and unknowable, actually, it's just a grouping of systems. A system is easy enough to understand. Let me explain some of it to you. It's an interconnected set of elements that coherently organize in a way that achieves something. Seeing our culture as a system helps us understand how it's failing to achieve what it promises. Let me break down what a system is for you. There's an input. There's something that comes in. Then there is a reserve or a container, a place where the input is held. You think you know where this is headed. Finally, there's an output where things come out of the reservoir or the container in which the input came. So something in, a container to hold it, and something goes out. We see this same kind of thing as we look at Psalm chapter 1. I don't know if you guys noticed this. Psalm 1 is not a prayer. All of the Psalms are, but Psalm 1 is not. Really, it acts more like a proverb. You ever wondered why? Do you ever know that? First off, maybe you did know that, and I wonder if you've ever thought about that. Psalm 1 is like the prelude to a great book. It's reminding us and leading us forward into the prayer book that we're about to read. It's trying to tell us if you will be this kind of person, a righteous person whose system is filled with God's presence, then you can read these prayers, understand them, and make them your own. Psalm chapter 1, verse 3, is a system. Let's look at it. That person, a righteous person, is like a tree planted by an input. What is the input? Streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. That's the output. The tree is the container, and whose leaf does not wither, and whatever they do prospers. A righteous person is like this system. God is like the stream. His presence and his word flow into our systems, producing health within us. Fruit then is the output. If our fruit is healthy, then we will benefit the larger system that's occurring around us. I'm a system, you're a system, we're all interconnected into larger systems. I'm saying that word a lot, I know. But I want you to grasp what I'm trying to say here this morning. Now, we need about three things in order to have a flourishing life. We need freedom, we need meaning, and we need deep relational connections. Those three things will produce within us flourishing. In our culture, though, the chief aim is to gain freedom, to gain autonomy, to make us into whoever we want to be, to create and recreate ourselves into our own image all the time. We receive constant messaging 
from the culture that to be happy and to be content, we need to increase our input of freedom. If we can just have more freedoms, if we can just break away from institutions and systems, then we will truly be happy. Here is the input that our culture gives us. Consumerism, materialism, hedonism, which is the pursuit of pleasure, sensual indulgence. That's the word that I got from the dictionary, just so you know. Sensual indulgence, that's hedonism. Individualism, which we talked about last week, is self-definition and self-expression. And finally, deconstruction of everything that's gone before. The former values and beliefs are not important. These are the inputs that we receive from our culture. And what's happening to us now is that our tanks of freedom are overflowing. While our tanks of meaning and deep relational connections are running dry. We live in a Facebook world where we have a thousand friends. But do we really have a thousand friends? Not really. From that a thousand, there's probably three or five that you know very closely. And outside of that circle, there's probably 75 whose names you remember. You don't have a thousand friends. Okay? Everyone just, let's say here, whoa. Let's take a breath. I'm just trying to give you some reality this morning. You don't have a thousand friends. You have a thousand acquaintances. You've got about 70 friends and about five besties. You should at least, because that is what a flourishing life will look like. But our culture wants you just to believe that if you can get more freedom, more autonomy, more of yourself, you will be truly happy and whole. We are drowning in freedom while our other tanks are dry. Sensing our unhealthiness, we attempt to ease the lack of meaning and relationships in our lives, so we will hunt for distractions at an ever-spiraling pace. Mark Sayer says the output of such a lopsided system is isolation and an increasing mental health crisis of escalating levels of depression and anxiety. The expansion of choice, anxiety, and information overload has created an endless sense of confusion and lostness, leading many to recoil from making any forward steps in fear of making the wrong decisions. For many, especially in emerging generations like millennials and Gen Z, a sense of paralysis has become the norm. Our Western system is founded on a reading of humans as free individuals who would become more happy and more content with more freedom. We have forgotten the wisdom that to find happiness and fulfillment, we sometimes need to reduce our freedom to gain meaning and relationships. This flurry of freedom has sent us on a pace that we cannot maintain and has left us tired and anxious, depressed and resigned, deflated and paralyzed. We are unable to make significant changes in our current lives. We are stuck. Educator and activist Parker Palmer makes a compelling case that burnout typically does not come about because we have nothing left. He tells us it merely reveals the nothingness from which I was trying to give in the first place. Christ wants to reform us at our roots. He wants to change our systems with his presence, thereby creating healthy fruit. So he will call us to a different way of life. And while our culture 
gives us promises and feeds us scripts that we should be busy and productive and work hard and carve out your niche, Jesus says something very different. Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you... Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Doesn't that sound nice? And yet I doubt many of us have internalized this truth. Because we do not live this way. The rest that we really need is to have our tanks filled with God's presence, not more of myself and my wants. From there, we can then engage with our mission, which would be the tank of meaning, and in an interconnected system of deep relationships. That's the other tank. But first, before we go on to the fruit work of mission and relationships, we need to focus on the root work of abiding in God's presence. Now, I want to talk today about three contemplative rhythms, practices that must become rules of life for each of us. Slowing down, silence, and Sabbath. These three contemplative practices force us to reprioritize God over self, to reprioritize presence over productivity. These practices are in direct contrast to our culture. I will call them resistance practices. They will help us to fill our inputs with God rather than the promises of our culture. So first off, I'd like to talk about slowing down. Let's take another breath. Doesn't it feel good? Hey, notice your shoulders. What are they doing? Are they up here? I hope not. Relax, rest. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Dallas Willard says, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. As long as we remain enslaved to a culture of speed, superficiality, and distraction, we will not be the people God longs for us to be. We desperately need a spirituality that roots us in a different way of being. Japanese theologian Kosuke Koyama, who you all know, wrote a book called Three Mile an Hour God. Three Mile an Hour God. This is not an arbitrary number that he's coming up with. This is the average speed a person walks. Kayama says that God has all the time in the world. He's not in a rush. It's in this unhurried, leisurely pace that we will be filled with God's presence. N.T. Wright also says, I love this. It is only when we slow down our lives that we can catch up to God. What a beautiful paradox. This is the paradox of slowing down. This intentional practice of slowing our lives down will set us in rhythm with God. Slowing down will require us to reacquaint ourselves with that long-forgotten thing that we hate, boredom. In this, we must remember, sorry, we are forcing ourselves into a pace that is unfamiliar to our current lives. If I were to ask you, how are you doing? You'd say, I'm good, I'm just so busy. How many times would that be your 
response. I'm good, but man, I'm tired. I'm worn out. I'm exhausted. But what we'll gain is more important than the activity that we could be doing. It will be a deep trust in God. Slowing down our pace and activity will also, yes, decrease our productivity. Let's take another breath. In this, we must remember that our identities are not formed by what we can produce, but by who God says we are. We are his children. We are his. Therefore, our obsession with achievement must be curtailed to accommodate the joy of margin. You guys know what a margin is like on paper when you're writing? It's the space that you don't fill up so a teacher can actually read your chicken scratch. Okay? That's what the margin is. And we don't have any margin in our lives. We fill our ledgers up completely. We use 100% of our energy, of our capacities, whether they're emotional or physical. We use up all of our money and have nothing left for God. We use everything up. My wife drives on zero miles. Like, it tells you when it's going to run out. Like, it, you know what I'm saying? It's not a surprise. You can watch the number tick down. I don't get it. But here's the reality. We all run on empty. What we need to rediscover is the joy of margin. How many of you find yourself racing from home to school to work to lunch to work to school to practice to work out to dinner to bedtime? Every single day. Most of us do not have space in life to consider God for more than a few minutes before we start our day and at the very end right as we're falling asleep reading his word. The psalmist says in Psalm 37, 7, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Proverbs 23, 4 says something similar. Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust your own cleverness. I love this because the reason you're rich is because God blesses you, not because you're awesome. There are many people smarter than you who have less money than you. There are many people more talented than you who don't have as much money as you do. We should not toil and strive for the things that we can't hold on to or keep anyways. Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust your own cleverness. Now, in the New Testament, there's this beautiful uh, story where Jesus is hanging out with the disciples one night, and Martha is getting busy trying to create this dinner to serve to the disciples, doing a good thing, actually, right? Jesus admonishes Martha for her busyness as the disciples are all gathered, she is racing about getting dinner ready and is becoming indignant at her sister Mary for not helping her. Jesus tells her that Mary has chosen the better part. Mary is accomplishing nothing, producing nothing, and going nowhere. Yet she has done the better thing, sat at the feet of Jesus. Mary had margin and joy. Martha had busyness and stress. We must create margin in our lives to reduce our exhausting pace. Even better, we learn through the practice of slowing down to create margin to trust in God for our identity and for our provision. Margin allows space. 
space then creates a void into which we have a choice to fill it with more of me or to fill it with more of God's presence. So we're slowing down to reform our systems and allow God to become more of an input into our lives. Your hurried pace points to one thing, you. Everybody has the same amount of time in a day. Amen? Sheesh, I would hope you'd affirm that. We all have the same amount of time in a day. So what produces what I would call a non-anxious presence? What produces that in somebody? They've learned how to reprioritize their time around the things that actually matter. Now, once we've caught up to God's slow pace, we must then learn how to be in his presence. How? Silence is golden. How many parents in the room know that this is the truth? We live loud, busy, distracted lives to the extent that we can barely think. And I notice this in my life when the only thing that I'm talking about with Rachel is what's on our docket and schedule for tomorrow. As opposed to talking about deep and real things in our lives. I also notice it personally when I get agitated. I'm a pretty laid-back guy in general. But when my tanks are getting empty, when I'm exhausted, when I'm tired, something happens to me. A devil, I don't know what happens, you know what I'm saying, gets in me and possesses me for a moment, and I get irritated and angry and annoyed at really silly things, like my three-year-old being a three-year-old. Why aren't you 17? Because she's three. She can't help it. But we live at this pace. Now, during the pandemic, Jeremy and Cameron bought me a set of Apple AirPods. I was floored. I mean, it's a fantastic gift. I love these earbuds so much. I can work out, I can wash the dishes, I can put the kids to bed, I can drive to work in my radioless truck, I can mow the grass all while listening to my favorite music and podcasts. My favorite feature of the headphones, though, is the noise cancellation. It's amazing. I can shut out the world and just soak in the music or the information. I can actually hear people on my phone calls now, and they can hear me, and I can almost... Rachel will tell you, maybe. I can almost multitask now. Our relationship with God needs this. We need intentional, relational noise cancellation. We need time in silence with God. Our goal will not be to accomplish anything, but just to be present with him and to him. So one of the practices that we have to adopt is silent prayer. Who has never heard of silent prayer? Just a couple of us. And many more of us who are not type A and didn't want to raise our hand there. Silent prayer is quieting our minds to simply be near to God. It's focusing on Him. Now, as I talk about silent prayer, something will begin to happen within us. That sounds weird. That sounds goofy. That sounds strange. I don't know how to do that. How are you good at silent prayer? Well, all of these questions that begin to well up in our heart are an indicator about where our relationship is with God right now. 
if the mere thought of sitting in silence as we focus on God's nearness seems uncomfortable to us, that ought to say something about where we are and how empty our tanks are of God's presence. It's true that the more comfortable you are with someone, the less you need to fill the space with our words. We don't need to talk with the people that we love. Now, we love to talk to the people that we love, right? But we don't need to. We just enjoy their presence. We just enjoy being with them. At the core of silent prayer is a commitment to establish relationship with God based on friendship rather than demands. Rich Velota says it this way, it's a surrender of our words to be present with the word. Mother Teresa was once asked in an interview what she says to God when she prays. Her response, I don't talk, I simply listen. The interviewer was thrown off a bit, but recovering quickly because he was a professional. He says, ah, I see. What does he then say to you? Her response was, he also doesn't talk. He also simply listens. The interviewer sat back and scratched his head. After a few awkward moments of silence, Mother Teresa says, if, I, if you don't understand, I can't explain it any more than that. How many of us are left scratching our heads at the thought of silent prayer? Those who have a deep connection with the Lord also have deep moments of friendship without words. We must recognize that silent prayer is not a technique to master, but a relationship to enter into. For many, what I'm suggesting is odd, but it's one of the root works of Christians across the centuries. I've been talking in our uh, visual theology guide, whatever the course is called, I forget the name of the book every time, visual guide to theology something. Uh, When we do it next, you should sign up for it. It's been amazing. I have gifted and talented students in there who are wonderful. What we've been talking about, (laughs) what we've been talking about recently is that the doing of theology requires that you at least know or know about some of the things that came before us. What I mean specifically are the creeds and the confessions. Now, if you're a Baptist in the room and I just said creeds and confessions, you're like, we're not, (laughs) come on now. We don't talk about creeds and confessions. I'm not saying we need to become creedal people. I'm not saying that. But I think you should know the creeds and confessions the same way that you know the Constitution. You kind of understand the contours and you kind of understand the content without maybe having it memorized in your head. What one author says is that for those of us who do not know the creeds and confessions, we are breaking the fifth commandment, which is to not honor thy father and mother. There are those who have gone before who want to shape us and form us the same ways that they were shaped and formed. Silent prayer has been a vital element of the church until very recently. Because we are so enraptured with our own programs, giftings, and abilities that what we want to do is create more, fill the space, do the thing, make the activity happen, as opposed to sitting in God's presence. And we must learn from the great monastic traditions. We must learn from the church fathers that we have to sit in God's presence while just being quiet. This is new in my personal life. 
for me, I have a target of about three to five minutes each day to just sit in silence. And I want to grow in that more, but right now that's my target. I find that my mind wanders everywhere in a three to five minute time frame. I mean, if I have ADD, it comes out the most in this moment. What I'm learning is that though distractions don't have to be a bad thing. Because I think what we are focused on, again, we're coming from our culture who tells us, produce, work, do the thing. Work as hard as you possibly can. Get as much out as you possibly can, as you work as hard as you possibly can. What silent prayer stands as in contrast to that is that you're trying to accomplish nothing. You don't need to be good or bad at silent prayer. You just need to attempt it. So distractions, actually, they just point to the fact that we're human. They just point to the fact that we need more practice on getting rid of distractions and focusing on God instead. So we need to reframe distractions not as a bad thing. They're moments for us to refocus our attention all over again. So distractions then can become a good thing. They're opportunities for us to focus on God as we sit in silence with him. There are times when I attempt silent prayer and I don't feel anything or experience the heavens open. But there have been times when God feels close. His joy feels real. His peace is with me and his love feels overwhelming. And isn't this what we're after? We're after him. Simply Jesus. We want to engage in this practice to be firmly rooted in his presence. Silent prayer will become a distinguishing characteristic for us as we set ourselves against the pace and promises of our culture. This, as I said, is a resistance practice. It is one of the major ways that we will input God's presence into our life systems and it will pay massive dividends the more that we practice it. It will begin to shape us into a non-anxious presence in a culture that knows nothing but noise, anxiety, and paralysis. We, however, as we withdraw to be with God, then return with something new. The same way that Moses did, the same way that David did, the same way that Elisha and Elijah did, the same way that Jesus models for us. Jesus withdraws from his disciples so that he can return only after having been in the presence of his father. I think oftentimes I've wondered, well, what's he saying when he's over there praying? I wonder if he said anything. I wonder if Jesus just sat in silence with his father. And I wonder how many of us need to adopt that kind of model into our lives as well. Lastly, I want to talk about the Sabbath. Sabbath keeping is a weekly 24-hour period of unhurried delight with no have-tos or ought-tos resulting in deep rest and renewal. Hey, Sabbath is not your vacations. Sabbath is not your vacations. Sabbath is not your vacations. If you walk away with nothing else today, this is what I want you to know. Sabbath is not your vacations. Vacations are wonderful. Go on them. Absolutely. They're great times to unplug and to do something fun with your family or your spouse or whoever, your friends, whoever you go with. Absolutely go on vacations, but they are not how you make up for your lack of Sabbath during the year. You wonder why many of you return exhausted from vacation. 
because you have not caught up. I say you, I mean me too. <laughs> when I come back from vacation, I'm exhausted. I'm so tired. How? Why? Because my tank is empty. Because I worked so hard to get to that vacation that then when I'm finally there, I really needed a month to actually rest. But we don't have that kind of time because I have to get back to work. The kids have this. I've got this going on. Here's the schedule coming up. My wife's got this going on. You understand what I'm saying. So vacation is good. Go on vacation. But it is not your Sabbath. Sabbath is a weekly 24-hour period of unhurried delight with no have-tos or ought-tos resulting in deep rest and renewal. Now, I realize that this practice is probably the most neglected of all of these. It's antithetical to our culture. It's completely opposite of what our culture says for us to be and to do. And before you send me emails that say, we don't have to observe the Sabbath, Jesus fulfilled all that in the New Testament. Well, guess what? You also don't murder people either. You know why? Because when Jesus came to give us the new covenant, he gave us a new covenant ethic. This is how we fulfill the law like Jesus, through love. You don't murder people because you love them. If you love God and love others, one of the ways that you will display that and show that is by recognizing the wisdom of the fourth commandment, which is to observe the Sabbath. So, no, you don't have to do it in order to relate to God. Absolutely. Don't send me an email because then I'll send you one back that says, well, who'd you murder this week? You're still forgiven, right? Don't send me those. I'll be frustrated. And if someone sends it as a joke, I'll still be frustrated. Now, Remember that you are being formed by your culture. Our culture says to be productive, to work hard, to hustle, to carve out your niche. This is a shallow formation that cares little for you as a person and really only cares about you as a producer. God's invitation in the Sabbath is to slow down, be present, and trust in him. There are three kinds of fatigues that we experience. There's fatigue of the body. What that means is that we have little sleep. We are pushing our bodies too far and living off coffee and your energy drinks. There's fatigue of the mind, where we are bombarded by information all day long. I was going to say something, but I'm not going to say it. We are bombarded by information all day long, and whatever you have on the TV playing all day long or whatever you're scrolling through on Twitter or Facebook all day long, you do not have the ability to process fully. Your mind can't absorb all of this, and what it ends up doing is leaves us anxious at the end of a day. So when we're scrolling on Instagram and seeing other people's highlight reels, we feel bad about ourselves as if we didn't do something this day. We have a fatigue of our minds that we can't healthily look at what's happening, happening outside of us. There's also a fatigue of the soul. Our lives are so full that we have little to no time with God and for him. These fatigues will all work together to hinder us from the fullness that God is inviting us into through the transformation that he offers in his spirit. What we need is rest for our bodies, rest for our minds, and rest for our souls. Sabbath is meant to accomplish just that. Now this is the fourth command in the Ten Commandments out of Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. 
On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Jeremy told me something that I hadn't noticed before as we were talking about the sermon this past week. It's amazing. The Sabbath command comes with an explanation. It comes with a reason for why we should observe it. God's reason is that observing the Sabbath is getting us in rhythm and in harmony with his rhythm and his pace. Isn't that what we're after as disciples of Jesus? To be in harmony with God's rhythm and pace and way of life? This is what we should want to engage in. This is the practice that we should go after because it calls us to pattern ourselves after God's way of being. You also have to remember something very important about this command. The Israelites, before they fled Egypt, can you tell me what what kind of class people they were in society? Slaves. They were slaves. God gives them this command after releasing them from Egypt as slaves. Being a slave meant that your life was given value and definition around how well and how much you can work. But God wanted the Israelites to be defined by something else than their ability to work. He wanted them to be defined by their new identity in him. The chapter before he gives them the commandments, he reshapes their identity. Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 6. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the, earth is, the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of what? Priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites speaking to Moses. God reshapes their identity around their image-bearing vocation to be kings and priests in the world. This is what they are supposed to be. They're supposed to rule on God's behalf while being mirrors, angled mirrors of his glory. People are to look at your life and understand that you are different in some way because your way of life is completely different. Your identity is completely reshaped and the way that you live, the pattern of your life is completely different. And this is what God is doing for a large group of slaves who have no identity other than you must produce, you must work. Now God is defining them around their image-bearing vocation and says that you are mine, now enter into my rest. Enter into my rhythm and into my pace. How many of you are slaves to your work schedule? How many of you are slaves to your routines, your busyness, your kids' activities, your anxiety and your depression, your fear of missing out? Many of us are still slaves to this day because we have not bought into the identity that God gave us, nor do we practice the rhythm and pace that he calls us to live into. In the midst of the exhausting, busy, and frantic lives that we live, God gives us the gift of Sabbath. And the brilliance of Sabbath keeping is that it's not so much about our keeping the Sabbath as it is about the Sabbath keeping us. The Sabbath reminds us of the gospel of grace. Sabbath keeping might be the greatest 
sign of grace because it's while we intentionally accomplish nothing that God still loves us. Amen? This is a great reminder. You have value because God loves you and calls you his child regardless of what you do. The Sabbath helps us to live into, to embody that reality by limiting our tanks of freedom to produce meaning and deep relationship within us. For a full 24 hours, I am limiting what I want to do. You understand what I'm trying to say? The production, the schedule, the routine. I'm limiting all of those freedoms that I have in order to find rest in God's presence. We are so used to producing that we forget to be present where we are. The Sabbath then is a day of presence, a day of being present to God, present to others, present to creation, and present to ourselves. And this blew my mind. I I was thinking about this this week. Adam and Eve's first day was the seventh day of creation. Someone want to tell me what the seventh day of creation was? Sabbath. It was rest. So Adam and Eve's first day should be like our first day. We should be modeled after the way that God created things to be. He designed us to first and foremost be in his presence. When God rested, what it means is that he didn't, he didn't fall asleep. That's not what it means. What it means is that he descended to his earth temple and he, be, he, he, and he inhabited it. He was in it. He was a part of it. He probably hung out with Adam and Eve. The pictures of walking in the garden in the cool of the day, that's exactly what was happening when God rested. He was fully present. Adam and Eve were fully present with God. And this is how we are supposed to live. Adam and Eve began their work after resting, not the other way around. Rest is not a reward for hard work. It is what fuels hard work. Our culture tells us that we can rest or go on vacation only after all the emails are answered and after everything is taken care of. Sabbath tells us that the world will go on without our need to be in it for 24 hours. It reminds us that we are not God. Everything will be okay without me for one day. I don't, I don't need to engage with everything for one day. I don't need to work for one whole 24-hour period because God will take care of me regardless. It calls us to trust God so much that we will put our potential financial earnings on hold for a day. We will delay our desires to do that thing or accomplish that task and instead spend time resting. We will limit our freedoms and practice 24 full hours of being filled by God's presence. So the Sabbath stands not as a thing that we should start to adopt every you know, six months. It stands actually as a way of life. A way of life that's not dominated or distorted by overwork. It's an input into our systems where we limit ourselves on purpose so that we will be filled with more of his presence, more of his love, more of his joy, more of his peace. The Sabbath is another resistance 
practice that fights against the scripts of our culture. Our culture believes that unlimited freedom will make us happier and more whole. The Sabbath reminds us that only God's presence can do that. Now, we're going to talk more during the podcast this week. Um, Alan got up and told you guys to listen to it, and if Alan says it, I mean, you have to do it. You know what I mean? If I say it, whatever, but if he says it, you've got to do it. Uh, but you should. You should listen to the podcast this week because I'm going to talk more about the particulars of how you practice slowing down, like actually what it looks like. Jeremy and I will talk about how you slow down, how you engage with silent prayer, and how you can begin to make the Sabbath a way of life in your life. But here's, here's what I want to encourage you first with. Starting small and working to make the Sabbath a priority is still progress. Practicing Sabbath will require you, yes, to rearrange your schedule. For some of you, your schedule is your God. Some of us need to rearrange our schedules and our routines. It may cause you to have to say no to some things and put up boundaries in your life. It may force you to prepare and plan in advance. All of these things are good for us, though uncluttering and unhurrying our lives so that we can practice Sabbath places God at the forefront of your life. And isn't this the goal of any and all spiritual practices? I said it earlier. We should want more of God. Sabbath is one of the ways we resist our culture. It's one of the ways that we open ourselves to God. So incorporating Sabbath as a once-a-month practice at first or even a 12-hour block while you're awake would be great. Yeah, I took Sabbath last night as I slept. No, that's not Sabbath, okay? That's what you need. But see, that's, that's even progress. Just doing something small in the beginning, but I think the goal for us ought to be that we should figure out ways to make it a weekly 24-hour rhythm of your life. And I know what's going off in your head. Impossible. Impossible. I have no time. Here's the point. You do have time. You're not making it for God nor are you making it for yourself and for the others that need you at your best. Amen? We do have time. Our priorities are out of sync. So we have to slow down. We have to engage in silent prayer. Sabbath keeping, all of these are important root work practices because they chart us towards renewal. If you want personal renewal then you have to change your life systems to accommodate more of his presence. We wonder why we are who we are and why nothing's changing. Because you're not changing. That's it. Because you're not changing. You want God to come down and completely flip you around and change you completely? He will when you're ready. He will when you're submitted when you trust in him and when you begin to change and chart your life differently. This will grow our roots deep like the tree that we talked about, planted by the streams of flowing water from Psalm chapter 1. We need to reroute our lives around these practices in order to even hear God in the first place. I want you to imagine a, a uh, like running track. I want you to imagine like a running track that you had at your high school or middle school or whatever. I think that many of us are frustrated with God because we are praying and seeking him honestly. But 
what we failed to recognize is that we are continually lapping God on this track. And as we run by him, we'll say something to him. He'll begin to respond, but we're so busy and we're so loud that we just keep running. And then we pass around the track once more and we're mad at God the entire time, as if he didn't try to speak to us. We didn't have the ears or the ability to hear because our pace was too fast. And so we run all the way around again and we hear another word from him and that fills us up just for another lap one more time, yet we're still angry at God and frustrated at him for not speaking to us fully. And then we keep doing this process over and over and over again and we're missing God because we won't slow down. I think what God would say is that I'm walking and I'm ready to talk to you whenever you'll slow down. God is walking on this track while we're sprinting as hard as we can. And he wants us to stop and walk with him because he moves at three miles an hour. And when we do that, when we do that, we'll begin to hear what he has to say. We'll begin to experience the renewal and the refreshing of his presence in our lives. These resistance practices of slowing down silent prayer and Sabbath will unhook us from the domineering and dominating scripts the deforming scripts of our culture and reform us to be rooted deeply in God's presence and in his word. So this is the task for this coming week. Look at your life. Look at your life. Look at your schedule, your God. Look at your routine. Look at your pace and honestly ask yourself, are you in rhythm with God? Actually, Do you make time for God anywhere in your busy days or are you rushing from one thing to the next thing in an endless cycle of productivity and you feel awesome about yourself because you're doing so much and God's sitting here going, why aren't we talking? Why aren't we hanging out? Does the system of your life, does it look off? Does it have anything to do with God's presence or is it all about what you have to do, all about your freedoms, your autonomy, your preferences, your desires and wants? You might be saying, well, my schedule is dictated by others. Yeah, to some extent, absolutely. Because you're in an interconnected system with others. But how you flood this interconnected system of others with meaning and deep relationship and with God's spirit How you do that is by first withdrawing to re-engage. We have to practice these resistance practices. I want you to imagine for a minute what slowing down might feel like. Let's all take another breath. Check your shoulders again. Check your jaw. Many of you are grinders. What's your jaw doing right now? What are the temples on the side of your head doing right now? How many of you take stock during the middle of the day just to do that? I find myself typing like this. And I wonder why my shoulders hurt at the end of the day. (laughs) I'm so anxious, I need to be productive. Now I want you to imagine moments of silent prayer and focus on God's presence. I want you to imagine yourself as a non-anxious presence around others because you're growing in trust and dependence on God. You're beginning to see the cultural lies that are being fed into your system and you're beginning to reject them and instead fill yourself with God. Imagine yourself as a non-anxious presence. Have you met someone who just has a different air about them? They're unbothered. You can't, you can't muss or fuss with them. They just, they're just, they just don't, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. 
Things happen to them, they're just like, yeah, okay, we'll deal with that. And aren't you a little bit frustrated at them? What's wrong with you? You should be mad. And like we, you know, start freaking out or whatever. And we're mad at them because they're unbothered, non-anxious presences. The mirror should be on us though, not on them. We should be looking at ourselves because you can become this kind of person. Why do you think the Pharisees are so mad at Jesus all the time? Yeah, well, because he's unbothered. He's unanxious. He's unhurried. He's walking at three miles an hour. He's totally dependent upon God's presence. And the more that we grow into that, the more that we can become that kind of person who feeds life just by being with others, who speaks life into other people because we come from a different understanding and a different way of life. I want you to imagine the way that you will begin to see the world as a different place the more that you're in God's presence. I want you to imagine resisting the scripts of our culture and instead aligning with God on a deep level of root work formation. What might that life look like? Once again, I want to end in prayer. But first, I want to start in silence. It's going to be so uncomfortable. But here's what I want to do. I, I, I actually, I'm going to put a timer up here. And I'm going to time us for one, I'm not going to tell you, one to two minutes. It'll be somewhere in there. And you'll just have to deal with it. Sorry, God loves you, okay? So I'm going to put a timer up here with my phone. We're going to sit in silence for one to two minutes before we start making demands of our God. First, we need to hear him and listen to him. Here's what silent prayer is. It's focusing your mind on him. It couldn't be more simple than that. It's focusing your attention on him. And when you find yourself distracted by your neighbor snoring, just break past that. Because distractions aren't a bad thing. They're an opportunity to re-engage with God once again. And here's the next challenge. I want you this week to do this five whole times. Or before you race off, or even as you're racing off, take moments of silence with God. I want to practice this together. Actually, I'm actually going to do it. Some of you are like, is he really going to be quiet? Yes, I am. Let's bow our heads and let's begin to silently pray.
Father, I want more of you. I want more of your presence. I want to grow in relationship with you as I focus on you being with me at all times. Help me to retrain and refocus my brain in resistance to my cultural scripts to instead hear your voice and be filled with your presence. Help me to slow way down. Help me to reframe what success looks like even in my own prayer life. Help me to reshape my life around the practices of silent prayer and Sabbath and slowing down. I want my life to be arranged around you. More of your life expressed in my life. Help me to say no to things. Help me to discipline my heart and my mind to make you my priority above any task. Help me to be present to you, present to others, and present to myself. Give me perspective and assurance. Give me peace that when I rest, I'm not missing anything because I'm gaining more of you. I pray for this room, Father. God, make us uncomfortable with our pace. Reveal to us who our gods and what our gods actually are this week. Help us to see that slowing down isn't just another way of living, but that it's the pace you want us to live at. It's your pace. Convict each one in this room to the point that we have to change. Don't let us be the same spirit. I'm asking you to press on people this week. I'm asking you to compel those in the room who are inwardly resisting the idea of slowing down. I ask that you break their wills in order to reform them into more of your image. I ask that you take my pride, our pride, and obstinance away. I'm asking that you remove our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh to really hear the wisdom of silent prayer, slowing down, and Sabbath. Spirit, bother us this week. Be incessant and push us to take up these resistant practices. Don't let us be content where we currently are. Don't let us keep believing that more and more freedom will give us what we really want. Help us to see the lies of our culture and respond through root work. We cannot do this on our own. We need your pressure to outweigh our culture's pressure. Wake us up, Spirit. Wake us up from our present routines. Shake up our hearts. Break through our walls. Don't allow us to be the same when we leave today. Father, I'm desperate for your spirit to break out in each one of us. I'm desperate for a new filling. I'm desperate for renewal and revival. I don't want to live the same way, and I don't want you to let me live the same way. I want to be shaped by your rhythm, and I want the same for the people in this room. I will contend for your passion to be within us. I pray for your love to overwhelm our resistance to you. Make me relent. Make us relent. Make us give up and give in to you. And while you're doing all that, Father, we recognize and remember that, Jesus, you are good. We affirm your love for us. We agree that you are Lord. You are Lord of lords and King of kings. Reign in my heart this week and reign in the hearts of those in this room. Show us more of yourself. Grow us to be more like you. Give us the fellowship of the Spirit. Give us hearts to hear and beat in rhythm with you. 
Give us zeal and passion for your namesake above our schedules and our routines. Help us to reject our culture's lies and live into more of your pace and your rhythm for your glory. Help us to limit our freedoms to fill our lives with your meaning, with your mission, and with your purposes. Help us to reduce our freedom tanks that we are drowning in and instead grow deep relational connections with this body of believers. When we do that, we will begin to flourish as you've called us to help us to grow into our image-bearing vocations as ones who are identified by you and for you. Then help us to obey all of your commands, including the Sabbath, slowing down, getting on pace with you, and growing in your presence as we silently sit with you. God, will you speak to us in a new way this week? Spirit, move us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand as we finish today? One of the elements of God's kingdom is his pace. If you want God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, then you'd be wise to follow his rhythm and pace. So as we recite today the Lord's Prayer, and when we say the words, your kingdom come, your will be done, don't ask that for out there, ask that for in here. Seek first his kingdom and all of these things will be added to you. Let's say these words together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let's finish with our closing benediction from 2 Corinthians 13, 14. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all this week. We love you. Listen to the podcast, and we'll see you next week. We are dismissed.